Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So, Alan, I feel bad for you being in the upper Midwest and not having this infestation of ladybug-like beetles that are coming into every house and home in the Washington area. Yeah, it is one of the advantages, I guess, of living in the frigid northern tundra, which is that, you know, summer ends in early August. But I do not have the problem that you all seem to be experiencing in down in the swamp that is D.C. Maybe your giant mosquitoes ate them all. I will say this happened in childhood, too, that, you know, there would be... Uh... A bit of a second summer, you know, mid mid to late fall, and we would just get ladybugs everywhere. It was kind of like a, you know, a seasonal visit. That's kind of nice. These aren't ladybugs. These are lady beetles. There's a big difference, evidently. And one, one we are supposed to love and are lucky and let in our homes. The other one we're supposed to murder viciously because they are just swarming monsters. Are they an invasive species? They're invading Just in my terms home, of our so day-to-day yes. lives. <laughs> Just thousands of them all at once everywhere. I have not experienced this. I have not seen this recently or the past. I do have my my favorite seasonal visitor, which is that my whole backyard in the spring and fall gets taken over by slugs at night. Like they're just Ooh. everywhere. How did you find that out? By walking around and stepping on them. That's how I found out oh. the way God intended. I feel really bad for slugs because slugs are almost <laughs> like, no, 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 hear me out. Hear me out. Slugs are almost like snails and everyone likes a good snail. So we should all like slugs. And yet there's something about how just like there's no there's no crunchy shell to offset the gooshiness of the slug. It's out of balance. The gooshy to crunchy ratio is out of balance with slugs. So we only like bugs when they're al dente. That's what we're looking at is a certain toothiness. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, everyone. And welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security from Russia with love. Because something that came to my attention when I was preparing for this episode is that we have a little unintended theme across a lot of our topics we're going to keep going back to, which is our favorite frenemies far to the east or far to the west. By the way, you'll get there eventually. But before we get to that, I am thrilled to be here with my co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello, I'm happy to talk about Russia as long as you don't try to do the accent. I'm only going to talk about Russia if you do the accent. (laughs) (laughs) The accent is about to come into play. Yakov Smirnov is making another appearance (laughs) slightly later this episode, but we'll see. uh, And we're excited to have our special guest here, Lawfare Chief Operating Officer David Priest. David, thank you for joining us. Hello. Alan, can you see Russia from your house? Yeah, I have no idea where Minnesota is. Is that true? <laughs> it's, it's just, it's somewhat northwest of DC. I can see Russia better from my house than you can see Russia from your house. That I am confident in saying. I actually have been to Wasilla, Alaska, and I will say it is like the most picturesque, beautiful place you have ever been. You cannot see Russia from there. That's a lot. Well, that was my but question. But it is absolutely gorgeous. It's unbelievable. Maybe on an extremely clear day from like a balloon. It's picturesque until Putin's head. Putin's face comes. Isn't that what she said? Isn't that what Palin said? She could like see Putin's face, like Putin from Russia, go over to I just want to say that that was over a decade ago. 
And wow. I think most of that was Tina Fey's parody of Sarah Palin on Saturday Night Live. And we're just like Strategery, which was Will Ferrell on Saturday Night Live, not actually I George literally w, cannot but. tell those apart. It is like a Baudrillard hyper-reality. I cannot tell <laughs> SNL Palin Meta. from real Palin. It's the metaverse. <laughs> not the metaverse. We're not going back to that again. That was last week. We're not bringing the metaverse back into this. But we are very excited to have everyone here today for the very special edition of Rational Security. <laughs> That's space law to you. If that doesn't make you sign up for Patreon, I don't know what will. It is, it is a, supposed to be evocative of echoing through the vast inky blackness of space. Well, ironically, there's no sound in space. Oh, we've seen enough movies. We know there's sound in space. Don't believe those scientists <laughs> yeah. and all their mumbo jumbo math science stuff. There are on sound stages, and that's really my only experience with space. And so that's fine. But we are very excited to be talking with everyone here today on the podcast about a number of topics about national security taken from the front pages, including, and here it comes, the Echo Smirnoff impression. Apologies for the accent. In Bielorussia, Everything, every, everything is just awful. Because in an effort to hit back over sanctions, the authoritarian regime in Belarus is deliberately admitting refugees only to channel them across its borders with the European Union. How should Europe be responding? Topic number two, taking tourist trap a bit too literally. In recent years, foreign governments have taken an unprecedented number of U.S. travelers as effective hostages. Is this a failure of U.S. deterrence or something else entirely? And topic three, space, the littered frontier. A Russian test of anti-satellite weapons has scattered refuse across outer space, threatening the safety of astronauts and potentially complicating space travel in the future. What should be done? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you. So as Scott mentioned, for the past few months, Belarus, and in particular its authoritarian leader, uh, Alexander uh, Lukashenko, has been essentially inviting refugees from the Middle East and Africa to enter Belarus and head to Belarus's western border, which is mostly with Poland, where an increasing number of these migrants are now stuck on the Belarusian side of a hastily built Polish-Belarusian border fence, not being let in to Poland and the European Union. Um, and when I say that Belarus has been encouraging this, They've clearly gone out of their way to increase the number of visas, for example, that they're giving out to individuals in the Middle East and Africa. They've increased the number of flights that the uh, Belarusian national airline has between these, between Belarus and, and these nations that have a lot of migrants. Once the migrants arrive in Belarusia, the Belarusians' military puts them on buses and ships them to the, to the western border. And this is pretty transparently meant to create a, a huge political and humanitarian crisis for Poland and the European Union, which is exactly what's happened. And I think the most important thing is to keep in mind the real human suffering that is happening. You have hundreds and thousands of people stuck in an increasingly you know, bitter winter weather, totally in limbo, where with, uh, on the one hand, Belarusia and, and Russia, its main ally here, cynically exploiting this as a way of punishing Europe for the sanctions that it's imposed on Belarusia for Belarusia's own human rights abuses. And on the other hand, you have this strange situation where the Polish government, which itself has taken a authoritarian and anti-democratic turn in the last several years, and has generally been criticized quite heavily for that by its other EU member nations and allies, it's actually getting a ton of support from Europe 
which does not want to give in to this Belarusian tactic. And of course, ultimately, again, it's these refugees that are suffering. So, you know, before we get into the the moral and kind of geopolitical implications, I, I want to ask you, Scott, as our resident international lawyer, is this legal? What Belarusia is doing? Um, you know, can you use migrants in this way to exert political pressure on another country? And if it's not legal, is there any prospect for a legal remedy in international law to be useful here, or is this, like many international legal issues, going to ultimately have to be decided through? international relations and international power politics? Those are great questions. And, and the thing I think to bear in mind about this is that legality here is actually a really complicated picture because there's a complex set of obligations on all the different actors, some of which Belarus is actually capitalizing on to bring the political and legal pressure on these states, particularly Poland, that is kind of trying to convey these refugees into. Those countries are part of the European uh, Union, the European community. They're subject to human rights obligations, including refugee convention, the Refugee Convention and related international instruments that are supposed to obligate them to accept people who have a legitimate claim to being a refugee, meaning they're at risk of oppression back home or where they're coming from, and to not return them to those conditions, at least until they verify that there aren't actually valid concerns along those lines. And because they're part of the European community and, and Europe more broadly, they have actually institutions in place to enforce this, the European Court of Human Rights, other international institutions, not just up to the individual governments to make those judgments, although they still have a lot of leeway, their decisions can then be challenged by refugees, by other governments, by private citizens in Europe before European courts. And that's part of Belarus's strategy here. It's what some people have called lawfare. Um, Matt Anderson, a military officer, wrote a great piece for our publication, Lawfare, on this, where he talks about this as an application of the concept of lawfare. That's one side of the equation, right? Another side of the equation is here what Belarus is doing. Belarus very, very doubtful that anything it's doing is legal in this particular space, right? It's arguably violating uh, certainly the sovereignty of these other states. Usually states are supposed to, under international law, be able to control their borders and monitor certain things consistent with their obligations, including non-refoulement refugees. But they're not supposed to be, states aren't usually supposed to be moving populations across another state's border without its permission. There are certainly are, but also been cases of there actually being conflict between Belarusian security forces and Polish property, at least. I don't know about actual personnel, but they've been accused of taking down certain border fences, border facilities, things like that. That certainly raised questions of international law about a violation of sovereignty. And then there's the big question, does all this arise to the level of something that could threaten the security of Poland or these other states enough that would rise to this capacity, they could exercise a right of self-defense under the UN Charter, or actually under international law that kind of predates the UN Charter. There, like most international law standards would say, probably not. Um, certainly, some of the stuff Belarus is doing seems like it could register, particularly the more direct conflict where they're actually like cutting down fences and doing things that are destructive to the Polish forces, or insofar as they're directing you know, the refugees to kind of encounter and come into arms and conflict with um, local folks there in those countries. But it does never rise to a level of severity that usually international law, international law institutions say you have to have a certain level of severity before it actually triggers any sort of right of self-defense. Uh, United States, no, worth noting, and some other countries don't actually have that same view. They basically say any sort of quantum of force can actually trigger a right of self-defense. But I don't know off the top of my head what Poland's view on this and other states' views on this are. 
But it's worth bearing in mind, like states actually have made self-defense claims on the basis of population flows. Occasionally in the past, Turkey did so, I believe, in the 1990s and in the 2000s in regard to Iraq. They're very controversial. I think they're contentious and they're often mixed in with other claims. But there is some basis there. But there's geopolitical reasons why that's not likely to lead any near term to any sort of military conflict, primarily because of the role of Russia in backing the Belarusian regime. So long story short, there's definitely legal violations happening here, very questionably activity is almost unquestionably not legal, but it's not clear really what the remedy will be. It means that those these countries might be able to impose certain types of sanctions, meaning economic sanctions or other sorts of measures against Belarus, against Russia, but they're going to be limited to how it would affect those have both because Belarus is already subject to so many and because it's under this protective envelope of Russia that limits what other states may be willing to do. So Quinton, David, I want to turn it to you, but before I do, I, I do want to just highlight one of the points that, that, Scott, you made briefly, which is that this is a form of lawfare. And of course, listeners of this podcast will recognize that term from the name of lawfare, the site itself. And, and I think it's, it's worth just taking a moment to unpack for those who don't know the origins of what that term means, what, what that means, right? When we think of lawfare today in terms of the site, we think of, well, it's a nice little portmanteau of law and warfare and national security and law, and it kind of works out well. But it originally refers to the use of law, and in particular, international law or humanitarian law, as a kind of offensive tool of international relations and politics and kind of war by other means. And so this is a, a perfect example of using the humanitarian obligations that a country like Poland has and may very well be violating right now in not allowing these uh, refugees to come into the country in you know using increasing levels of force. Um, you know, there was a New York Times story that came out early today um, on Tuesday about how the Polish authorities are using you know, water cannons to deal with an increasingly frustrated population of these folks on the border, which raises its own international and humanitarian concerns. You know, th this is a, a perfect example of this kind of lawfare. So Quinta and David, let me let me turn it to you. What should the Europeans, what should the Poles do? I mean, is is it right to keep these otherwise totally innocent, uh, suffering migrants in limbo? Or do they just have to accept them and just accept that they've been kind of outflanked by the Belarusians and the, uh, and the Russians in this one? Quinta. Well, first off, I mean, I think it's important to establish that Poland is not, you know, an innocent player here, right? Jaroslaw Kaczynski, who is the leader of the ruling party in Poland's parliament currently is has been putting out really vile just horrible stuff trying to sort of convince Poles that you know that there's hordes of migrants that are you know dirty and bringing disease there's an incident where they that the party put out a video of someone engaging in bestiality and said it was video of somebody in the in the, the forest on the border it was not that. So I think, you know, it's it's playing into both whatever it is that Lukashenko is doing and the sort of very ugly nationalist turn in Polish politics right now as well. But I also think it's important to put this a little bit in context in terms of, you know, what Europe's policy has been toward migrants and refugees over the last few years. I'm going to do a little log rolling for a friend of mine, Joy Neumeyer, who's a historian of Russia and Eastern Europe and had a, a what I think is a really good piece in the New York Times, basically making the argument that what is happening now is 
not necessarily a natural outgrowth because Lukashenko obviously made this happen and he could have decided not to do that, but follows naturally from Europe's response to the migrant crisis of a few years ago where the bloc basically chose to kind of seal itself off and let as few people in as possible. And I do think that it is absolutely true that there is a dynamic here of sort of Belarus and perhaps Russia against the EU and Poland as a sort of spoiler actor within the EU. They're not particularly cooperating with the European Union right now. But it is also true that the EU isn't blameless here either. Um, They've chosen to keep people out. And that's why people are so desperate to get in by, you know, weird means involving flying from Iraq to Minsk and then trying to smuggle yourself across the border. It's really sad. It's like there's so many other cases like this in history of no good actor on either side. I mean, the Poles have have not done themselves proud. The government has not done uh, the Polish people proud on this. And obviously Lukashenko and what he's done. Remember, this is the guy who used air traffic controllers to hijack a commercial flight to arrest a dissident not that long ago. If he did not have the support of big brother Vlad next door, uh, he would probably be receiving a whole lot more attention from the international community. But that doesn't that doesn't help the people trapped in the middle. It, It doesn't matter if they're good guys or bad guys putting them in the situation they're still in a horrific situation as winter is approaching. And I don't know my history of that part of the world as well as I should, but I do know that winters there are nothing to be messed with. Just ask Napoleon. So for me, I look at that and the humanitarian situation is the primary issue here. Other issues need to be addressed, of course, which is the lawless behavior of Lukashenko. But there are many lives at stake right now. The other thing I look at, especially if I'm an intelligence analyst looking at this situation, is I'm forcing myself to look at the bigger picture. Because what's the context of this? As we'll talk about in a few minutes, you have Russia conducting an anti-satellite test, which is uh, aggressive. You have Armenia and Azerbaijan heating up in a situation that Russia has prodded before. You have The United States moving fully out of Afghanistan. You have the apparent massing of Russian forces in and around eastern Ukraine. If you're looking at all of these things put together, you're wondering, is Russia doing that thing that analysts have warned about for some time, which is pushing the West in various places at the same time to see where the give is? And it might not be an isolated incident of Lukashenko. Uh, This might be part of a coordinated campaign that at least has some links back to Moscow. I think there's there's something to that. I mean, obviously, as you said, Lukashenko is sort of in this odd position where he gets cover from Russia um, and sort of wouldn't be able to hang around if he didn't get that. On the other hand, I remember after he sort of took power, despite the it's seeming results of an election that elected the uh, opposition leader and then forced on the plane talking to somebody who studies Eastern Europe and them saying, you know, in a way, Lukashenko is sort of like the the awkward little brother who wants to sit at your table as far as Russia is concerned. And there are a lot of things that he does that to Moscow are the equivalent of, you know, 
your little brother makes a mess and you go, oh my God, so embarrassing. But he's your brother, so you have to help him. Um, And (laughs) I do wonder to what extent that is going on here. I mean, obviously there's been a lot of reporting about Russian troops on the border with Belarus performing military exercises. The New York Times also reported, um, this is Tuesday afternoon um, just now, that Russia actually undercut a threat made by Lukashenko about transporting gas to Europe that Lukashenko had suggested that, you know, if this continued, that perhaps Russia would cut off the flow of gas, which, as we know, would be a big problem given that it is it is getting very cold. And the Kremlin just issued a statement saying, no, the gas will continue to flow, which sort of makes me wonder whether this isn't a situation where Belarus and Russia are in lockstep. But I don't know. And it's interesting, this has kind of, I think, fed into some of the strategy that people seem to be taking in, uh, meaning the Europe seems to be taking in how to address it. The latest step that we've been hearing people talk about is an effort to basically cut airline access off to Belarus and to Minsk, either entirely in some of the more extreme proposals, or at least between major you know, Middle Eastern departure points. So Istanbul, other other cities where a lot of these refugees are coming from to go to Minsk and working with airlines, working with other companies. It's actually kind of a good example, I think, because this strategy actually could be kind of effective. I mean, Belarus, unlike Turkey or a couple of these other countries that are really like the natural gateways for big refugee populations in Europe, Belarus is not really, right? Like it borders Russia and Ukraine. You got to get through Russia and Ukraine on ground to even get to Belarus. It's because they're being people are flying in there to some degree being induced to do so by Belarus and by this sort of situation that they've set up. So, you know, European states, it looks like they're having some success negotiating, working with airline companies, kind of underscoring their greater legitimacy slash goodwill slash economic weight with these major international actors and lets them bring other tools to bear. It just takes some time to get there. And I think you're going to see those sorts of solutions actually probably being kind of effective at shutting this down. There's still going to be a really bad situation on the ground. That's going to be primarily, but it doesn't, it seems like they have a strategy towards at least cutting back some of these flows. The bigger problem though, is just, this is just one in a litany as David's kind of alluded to of these sorts of things that Russia and Belarus are doing in coordination or not. And who knows what the next one's going to be. They clearly are in a very consciously disruptive, provocative mode, as we're going to talk about throughout this episode, really. One, one other brief thought on the migrants issue is that yes, Lukashenko is pushing this, but there has to be a supply of migrants here. And they seem to be coming, according to the reports I've seen, primarily from Iraqi Kurdistan, which is in almost always the relatively well-off part of Iraq. And yet you still have people seeking by any means necessary to get into the EU because things are so bad and there's no opportunity back home. This is the shape of things to come, not necessarily because of economic issues in Iraq, but think about the climate change refugees that will be coming even within the next decade. Predictions are that this is nothing compared to what we'll be seeing. Well, now that we spent some time talking about countries trying to keep people out involuntarily, let's go to countries that are trying to keep people in voluntarily. A very interesting piece was published in the Washington Post earlier this week, co-authored in part by Jason Rezaian, of course, a Washington Post journalist uh, or columnist now, I suppose, who was detained in, in Iran for several years until being released uh, maybe about two years ago, three years ago. No, a little earlier than that, actually, in the mid, mid-2010s, I think. And they make the point that while the United States has had some success 
in reducing the number of Americans that are being detained by non-state actors, primarily the Islamic State um, and some other groups that in the early to mid-2010s were very active in trying to capture uh, Americans overseas. We've seen this spike in the number of foreign governments, or the number of Americans being held by foreign governments, excuse me, primarily driven by Iran, Russia, China, Venezuela, North Korea. And they make the argument uh, that this is, in fact, a growing trend that reflects some sort of failure uh, on the part of the United States in regards to deterrence or in regards to some sort of new willingness by these states to take these sorts of steps uh, and to do something so risky that, uh, you know, I think the strong suggestion this is at least a new threat that the United States needs to wrestle with. But it's an interesting, certainly, trend that they've kind of identified here. Alan, let me turn to you first. What do you make of this argument about where this fits in sort of this trend of this con- sort of conduct and and how the United States should be responding. So I, I think it's important to separate the question of, is this bad, which is yes, and is this a real threat that the United States has to think of on a strategic basis, also yes, to does this represent a failure of U.S. foreign policy or deterrence? Eh, maybe I'm not convinced. And so what I mean by that is, look, obviously, if you're the person that is being held hostage or you're that person's loved one, this is a, this is horrifying. It's a nightmare. And we should not underestimate that at all. And there does seem to be enough of this now that it probably makes sense. And I, I'm sure this is happening in the administration for people to think about this, not just as a bunch of one-offs, but in terms of, you know, how do we stop this? What's the playbook going to be? How can we create whether it's uh, you know, norms uh, against doing this or what are the kind of responses and countermeasures we can take, all of that's totally fair. And one can imagine better or worse ways of doing this. I think the problem is going from that to say, well, therefore, this shows that America is showing weakness. I mean, I, I think that is far too hasty because states are always looking for new and innovative ways of harassing each other. And this has a sort of hydraulic nature to it, where you can shut down one tactic and then the the competition and the desire to harass kind of flows in another direction. And, you know, the, the fact that what we're talking about is, and again, I, I don't want to minimize this, right? It's really bad. But we're talking about people not being allowed out of a foreign country back in the United States, rather than airstrikes, supporting terrorism, et cetera, et cetera, shows that these states although they want to harass the United States, and this is a successful way of doing so, feel quite constrained in how they can do so and have to use this somewhat bizarre technique. Now, again, I don't think that that means that we should be patting ourselves on the back for forcing states into this weird hostage-taking posture. But I, I think it's important to separate the question of, is this a problem that needs to be dealt with? Absolutely. From, should we draw some broader conclusions about America's fall from the world's dominant superpower, blah, blah, blah. And there, I'm just not convinced that the case has been made, nor do I think it's particularly relevant for the tactical issue at hand, which is how do we stop this from going on? Yeah, I think I'm I'm with Alan here. I guess, so first off, of course, you know, the a lot of the stories that are listed in this article are just really heart-wrenching. And so is Jason Rezaians, right, who is held for, I can't think of how many days, but by Iran, I remember there was a t- I briefly watching walking through the Washington Post offices a few years ago, and there are free Jason signs everywhere. So I don't want to minimize that, but I think there there are two cases that are flagged in the article that I think kind of made me take a step back a little bit and might be useful to 
to point to specifically. So one is the Paul Recessabagina case. So this is, if that name sounds familiar, it is probably because he is the hotelier who was memorialized in Hotel Rwanda, who basically allowed people to shelter in his hotel during the Rwandan genocide and was recently sort of lured into Rwanda, I guess I would say, uh, arrested, charged, and I think sentenced to quite a long sentence in a trial that I don't think was fair by any standard. That said, it is also true that, you know, there is a longstanding enmity between Recess Bagina and Paul Kagame, the president of Rwanda. I don't want to get into the specifics here because it is super complicated, but essentially it involves there being political rivals, Recessa Bagina sort of throwing his chips in with uh, Rwandan uh, Hutu power movement. Very complicated. I'm not sure how much the United States figures in this is my point, right? It seems to me more like Paul Kagame really had it out for Recessa Bagina and this was an easy way to get at him. Recessa Bagina is or was a permanent U.S. resident, so I don't know how much that plays into it, though it doesn't seem like a geopolitics thing. The other I'll go through very quickly is the case of Paul Whelan, who's an American former Marine who uh, was recently sentenced by Russia to, I think, 12 years in prison. And Joshua Yoffa in The New Yorker has written about this case. It is just a weird, weird, weird case. And it really does seem like the Russian security services genuinely thought he was a spy. He does not appear to have been. But there's just a lot of weird games of telephone and confusion and back and forth. And so, again, I don't think that Whelan should be in prison, certainly, and I would love it if he were to return home. But knowing a little bit about that case, it didn't necessarily strike me as hostage taking so much as a process that sort of got out of control and somebody got crushed in the wheels, if that makes sense. So maybe I'm just defining hostage taking too narrowly, but those parts of the article raised questions for me. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, I think a number of both what you and what Alan have said, um, you know, a number of these cases I think are more complicated, although I also think it's clear that there are a number of cases here that seem to be very motivated by a desire to gain leverage through the detention of these individuals. The logical part of this that I, I raise a little bit of an issue with along the lines of Alan describing is this idea that this is all of a sudden a failure of deterrence or weakness. Because it's not clear to me it's not it's that as much as it might just be a shifting to a different sort of tactic in response to perhaps some successful tactics in deterring other sorts of conduct, right? If you think about what, you know, comparable sort of rogue states, for lack of a better way to describe it, but like hostile to the United States states did in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, they did a lot of things, but they often like supported terrorism where they killed Americans over thieves. Remember, think of the, like the Pan Am 103 bombing or think about, uh, you know, frankly, a lot of what Libya did to support uh, various acts of international terrorism in the international community. Also, sometimes actually straight up military action, right? Like there are cases of uh, Libyan fighter jets in like 1981 buzzing a bunch of U.S. ships in the Mediterranean. A lot of much more overt action that they're willing to do and that, again, killed Americans, right? Now, it's possible that States aren't willing to engage in that so much more for a variety of reasons. We don't see that many states actually sponsoring that stuff now. Non-state actors, big problem. Maybe that's a success of the stigmatization of support for terrorism since 9-11, because there has been a very international level effort there. Maybe that's because the United States has tended to take a militarized response into a lot of these actions. That's I don't think we can rule that out. Uh, I also wouldn't want to overstate the case there either. But it's possible that 
hostage taking of this sort has emerged as a desirable strategy precisely because other options have become more limited. And I will say the other factor of this is like, it's a supply problem. It's the fact, frankly, that like you have a lot of Americans traveling in areas where there's this is a known behavior by the regimes, right? Um, I've encountered this. I've unfortunately I've been on all ends of a couple of hostage taking cases where I've had people I've known being held by foreign governments at various points. I've been involved with some of these cases, and I've, I've talked to a lot of people about like, well, should I be traveling to this country or not? And a lot of these countries on the list, my answer is almost uniformly no, because this is something they know. You, we know that they do. And you're putting yourself, particularly if you're a former U.S. government official, meaning they can come up with some sort of pretext of you're an intelligence officer or you have some sort of tie to someone that's a problem and that's a security threat. This is the sort of things that they have established trends of doing. We know in the case of North Korea, the United States has basically said, like, people shouldn't be going to this country, except for very limited purposes. And a couple of these other countries, similar regimes in place. Part of me thinks that that's actually where the clearest U.S. policy response needs to be. It's making it a lot harder to start going to these places because, frankly, like there's this risk that's always going to be there, and they've got to. In some ways, it's going to be a lot easier to limit the supply than it is to take reciprocal action against these people or respond in a way that's not going to put the people who are being held hostage their lives in danger or otherwise, you know, trigger other sorts of interests. To build on that and and each of your comments, I think it is interesting that we're seeing this as a different flavor of asymmetric warfare that you know states that don't want to or cannot challenge on the big battlefield decide to do it in this way. Sometimes that was done by terrorist acts, and now it's done by just grabbing Americans. I, I think that's one interesting trend to look at. And I think it was the Washington Post that had some really good data visualizations on this and graphics showing the big shift about 10 to 12 years ago when hostage taking started to become more common than terrorist acts. And uh, I think it took off even more so, more significantly about six years ago. The bigger trend that this fits into, I think, goes beyond just those few rogue states. Like you said, Scott, you had Libya in the 1980s, you know, bombing the LaBelle discotheque and the Lockerbie issue not long after. But Freedom House earlier this year released a, a huge report on what they called transnational repression, in which they looked at 31 different countries that use direct physical action as well as mobility controls and long distance threats in 79 different countries around the world to try to go after dissidents in many cases, uh, but also third country nationals. And to the extent that there's this weakening of norms regarding the, the sanctity of the individual when traveling internationally, it kind of goes along with what Russia has been doing with Interpol by jacking up its public red notices in the Interpol system to try to get countries to arrest people to prepare for extradition. I thought I saw recently that Russia had issued something like 35 or 40 percent of all public red notices through Interpol. Well, this this misuse of that system, just like the misuse of arrests of nationals on trumped up charges, it does seem like a larger trend. And maybe it's a good trend because it's not killing people, like Alan said, but it is a disturbing trend for anyone who engages in international travel and business. Scott, I want to ask you about your idea of sort of making travel more difficult, because I, I think it's interesting, but also makes me kind of sad. <laughs> I guess the, the question is how widely you think the U.S. government should impose that 
right? Like, do we not want any Americans traveling to Russia? Do we only want a limited amount of Americans traveling to Russia? It, I, I see where the reasoning comes from, but I also worry that the end result there is just a smaller and more parochial world in a way that ultimately doesn't resolve any of the questions that we've been discussing in, in this segment or the previous segment and that we will discuss in the next segment also. No, I mean, that's absolutely right. That That's what the result would be, right? Is like less international exchange. But I don't know how you get around the behavior of these states when they're doing this within their own territory. The State Department's primary approach now, right, is to inform people. They put up travel advisories, travel warnings. Although, if I'm being honest, like, they're not always as specific uh, or as useful as they should be, nor are they really given as much credence because sometimes they're very broad and they tend to issue warnings for all sorts of minor things. And sometimes the bigger issues actually get kind of slipped, not caught up by people traveling in these places. I, I will say I'm still getting travel notifications from a country that I went to six years ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not wow. it's not an ideal system, to say the least. Um, but there's a system there, at least, right? There's an approach to it. And it's there's a consultative system saying, let's, how do we set this risk level? But, you know, the risk in these cases isn't just to these travelers. It's to U.S. foreign policy. It's to the fact that people are going to try and really capitalize on these people's predicament and, again, use them as hostages to leverage U.S. foreign policy interests. Now, I think you've got to calibrate a little bit. Like, there's going to be people who have good reason to go to these countries for diplomatic reasons, business reasons, perhaps. But, you know, maybe start really being really careful about thinking about what sorts of visas you think are appropriate, set up restrictions on the types of conduct. There's going to be difficult to enforce, but not, not impossible. Thinking about looking at purposes for simple tourism in some of these cases, like, that's not a great idea. And that actually does still happen in a number of these countries. And I'm I'm not sure exactly what the justification for that is. Now, I say this, that, that weighs on me really heavily. Like I'm somebody who spent most of their life studying the Middle East and traveled through a lot of it. And the places I haven't gotten to travel to is because of situations like this, where the host government uh, is one that I don't necessarily trust to uh, you know treat me necessarily well when I travel there. And I really desperately want to go there. Like I wanted to go to Iran for a lot of my life. And at one point, I briefly had an opportunity I did not take and I've regretted it since. But my advice to people is that it's just not worth at this point while these states engage in this behavior. And it's also a way that you can actually impose some meaningful sanctions on them. Like getting cut off from the international community is going to matter a lot more to these states than it will to the countries that are sending people to those countries. Because those people can still go to other countries that don't engage this sort of behavior. But when, you know, Iran uh, or Venezuela or these other countries that still have some sort of connection to the international world begin to see that cut off because of the actions of their regime. That's one more vehicle for putting pressure on their regime to stop this very specific sort of problematic behavior. And frankly, the place I think needs to see it applied more than anywhere else is probably China and Russia. Even though we have the densest economic ties, you see more and more people going there. They're the ones who have the most incentive to do this behavior. That's frankly hardest for the United States to do anything about on any other front. And we see them do it repeatedly and pretty brazenly uh, in the case of China recently, as we've discussed on a prior episode. You know, I, I think it's time to start really seriously considering how appropriate it is to have those sorts of Americans traveling there so freely when the regime does this sort of thing. And until we have credible commitments that they'll stop. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. On another cheerful note, let's talk about space. Still, Russia is still involved. Don't even worry about it. Uh, so yeah, so this is our space law segment. I'm not going to do the voice. Um, so that was insufficiently uh, enthusiastic, Quinta. Space there. law. There's no echoes in space. Okay, so earlier this week, listeners may have seen a somewhat alarming announcement from Space Command, U.S. Space Command, saying there's some debris in space. How did the debris get there? You ask. Well, it turns out. Russia carried out an anti-satellite missile test and smashed one of its own satellites into tiny little pieces. And those tiny little pieces are now floating around and endangering both U.S. and Chinese astronauts um, who are currently in space. Now, there are a lot of questions that I have about this. But before we go any further, I should note, though this may have been particularly reckless, it is not just Russia who has done this. China has also carried out tests like this in the past. The United States has carried out tests like this in the past. India has done so. So the short version seems to be that everybody is just blowing things up in space and creating a lot of trash that is <laughs> floating around. So my first question is why? <laughs> and my second question is, is what do we do about it? David, please explain this to me. Yeah, the the why question, it's the same reason that there was a race to build dreadnoughts back in, you know, the early uh, 1900s. It's it's a typical arms race where the United States, I mean, look, the United States had the chance back when it was testing against satellites to go along with some restrictions on such activity. And back in the Bush 43 administration, they were so worried about any possible connection to missile defense that they pushed away from those efforts. The Obama administration came in, they saw advantages to leaving this open too, and they rejected the code of conduct that the EU had developed. Trump, of course, wanted a space force and put out some directives explicitly talking about projecting military power into space. So I don't think this is any surprise, but we do need to keep it in some kind of perspective. As of, I think, a year or two ago, there were estimates from NASA that they were tracing upwards of half a million bits of space debris that were at least one centimeter wide. So adding 5,000 bits of space debris, some of which are smaller than that, yes, that's a problem, but that's some fraction of 1% of the debris that is already out there. And thankfully, the International Space Station is built so that it can withstand a hit by a 10 centimeter chunk, even at high speed. Now, we all worry about the scenario that maybe you saw in the movie Gravity, where there is a cascading effect. And that really is a concern. That That is something scientists do take seriously, unlike some of the later parts of that movie, which they rolled their eyes at. Of course, unlike in Gravity, you wouldn't see it coming. These speeds are truly amazing. And there would not be much of an opportunity for an escape. It, this would have to be a rescue mission of some kind. But in terms of the debris itself, yeah, this is bad. Let's Let's not minimize the fact that there is more debris now floating and in directions that aren't as predictable as what NASA has been, been tracking. But it is a much, much, much larger problem than just one attack on a satellite. 
Yeah. So a, a couple of thoughts about this. I mean, I think it's important, I think, to David's point and to your point, Quinta, to recognize that an anti-satellite test from the Russians was inevitable. You know, Russia still considers itself to be a great power. It is at the very least a strong regional power. It's certainly the second most important space power. And, you know, for many decades went toe to toe with the United States on that. And in a world in which China, India, the United States has demonstrated anti-satellite capabilities, it, it was inevitable that Russia would would do this, if only to show that it had the capabilities to to act in this way and also just for national prestige. You know, at the same time, there are different ways of doing anti-satellite tests. So, so when in 2008, the U.S. shot down one of its own satellites, which was malfunctioning, you know, at the time, the U.S. argued that, well, this isn't a test. We're actually doing this because there's some dangerous chemicals on the satellite. And if it hits the Earth, the, it could, the dangerous chemicals could cause a problem. Eh, it's pretty clear that that was not a great excuse because they weren't actually that dangerous in retrospect. And it was probably a pretty nice opportunity for the U.S. to test its anti-satellite technology under the guise of something else. But at the very least, when the U.S. did this, it it did so with a satellite that was in low orbit and was already coming down anyway. So although it created a bunch of debris, that debris then fairly quickly deorbited, entered the atmosphere and, and burned up. This is why it's so important to distinguish between, you know, what kind of debris you're making, where in orbit it is, how long it's going to stay in orbit, whether or not you give other affected entities, countries, companies, astronauts who happen to be in space a heads up about this. I mean, I think that is what is driving people insane about what Russia did, which is that like they didn't tell anyone. And so they had to go and wake up the astronauts on the International Space Station, some of whom, of course, are themselves Russian which is kind of another irony of this. Yeah, and tell them, oh, by the way, go into your bunker for a little bit. I I think the the broader issue is, to David's point, that this is much bigger than any particular test. And, you know, I I think the way we have to think about it is we as a civilization, right, on this earth and a increasingly spacefaring civilization have a space junk budget, essentially, right? There's, There's like so much crap we can put into orbit, you know, before it becomes a real problem. And some of that we can deal with just by waiting because some of the stuff will decelerate over time. It'll burn up in the atmosphere. So the, the space debris does clear over time. But then, of course, as we're adding more stuff into orbit, that's a problem. So, yes, I, I, I think the lesson here is this is a classic tragedy of the commons. We're all just putting crap in space for various legitimate and non-legitimate purposes. And I'm sure we'll talk about this later in the conversation. There needs to be some process, some agreement, some something to deal with that over the long term. Yeah, you know, this is like a really interesting parallel. Part of the reason I love outer space and space law generally is because it's always an interesting parallel to like problems that human beings encountered a millennia ago when they were just beginning to think about the law and how it applies to different scenarios. In this case, it actually relates to a problem that has been wrestled with by legal systems, like all going back to ancient Greece and ancient Rome, which was in that era, you would encounter like free floating in the open seas vessels that had wrecked or cargo that had been destroyed or left open or was at risk of being destroyed or left open. And what ended up emerging in the common law at the time is this idea of the law of salvage, which basically said 
private citizens, if you come across this property at sea and you know who it is, you're entitled to a reward for saving it and returning it to them. Um, and at various, under various circumstances, you can actually claim it because essentially the property is considered abandoned at a certain point. And evidently, you know, the legal regime around outer space really boils down mostly to the Outer Space Treaty, this treaty that was established in the 1960s, that gives pretty strong property rights to space objects like satellites and vessels that tends to continue. And, and uh, at least from something that I've been reading in preparation for today's episode, people see that as an obstacle creating a law of salvage because it doesn't clearly say, well, when does it expire? When does this rule of ownership begin to end? Although personally, I don't see why that's restrictive, right? Because even in the ancient Greece and Rome, there were concepts of property defined in law, and there is an assumption that they would end. I don't see a reason why you couldn't have background principles that would do the same thing that would not necessarily be overridden by you know, a treaty regime uh, that wasn't specifically intended to do so. The key point here, though, is that what ended up happening in more recent days is that People took this law of salvage at sea and adapted to environmental situations, saying basically like, well, the harm doesn't just come when people lose their property at sea. It can also come when it's an oil tanker and it's leaking oil everywhere and the company or the country that owns it can't do anything about it. So people who come and stop that oil tanker from leaking get a reward against that country or against the chip owner for helping them avoid liability, basically salvaging from liability, right? It's a really like a regime that seems to have like it could have potential here. Because here's a situation where, unlike a certain types of like tragedy of the commons, you actually have property rights in that every state is supposed to own most of these space objects that we can track, right? Even ones where they break up, even when it's chunks of stuff, it's supposed to be owned by a state and there's some effort to track them up to a certain scale. Um, so you might be able to actually attribute responsibility here. What you're lacking is any sort of enforcement regime, whether it's kind of a voluntary one through some sort of treaty regime or some sort of compulsory one. But we do have a system in which states regularly, when they injure each other, their property, their citizens, you know, they extract claims from each other. They make international law claims that they then either can submit to arbitration or international bodies or sometimes just result bilaterally and sometimes claim against each other's property and things like that. This, this is something that doesn't happen as often as it used to 50 or 100 years ago, but it's still part of the international law ecosystem. So uh, yeah, so I, I, think there, I think there's interesting legal tools to be brought to bear on this sort of issues. The question is just how do you get to the point where you can install them. Treaty negotiations have been really hard. We've seen a lot of space agreements move to a non-binding voluntary area that may not do much because to do establish legal rights that are enforceable in like local court systems. So maybe here you need major legal actors to begin acting and moving on their own to start establishing actually like enforceable legal standards through some other mechanisms, maybe pulling from these old principles that might have application here. I don't know. It's interesting. It's an interesting question about how do you get around to developing these legal regimes, but it's not a totally new problem. There are solutions people have crafted to very similar problems in the past that might have application. One thing to note is that it certainly doesn't seem like the problem is going to get any better, not only because obviously we're going to continue throwing junk into space, but also because there's been some scientific studies about how um, increases in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere lower the density of the atmosphere, which means that less space junk will burn up. So it's going to, there's both a supply problem and the problem that the space junk sink like uh, like the carbon sinks are also going away. You really know how to cheer us up. It's my specialty. Well, th there's also just to just to just to pull a pull a double quinta here and make it even more of a bummer. You know, th there's also the thing we haven't talked about directly, which is the anti-satellite weapons themselves, which are kind of terrifying, right? You know, given the importance of satellite communications to modern civilization, the fact that you have many countries that have shown an ability to take out 
each other's satellites is itself a very scary thing. Now, maybe, I don't know, I'm putting on my game theory hat on here. Maybe you want to have actually some degree of proliferation of these weapons because then everyone points their weapons at each other's satellites and that actually creates a, a level of deterrence. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm um, just kind of getting way too close to our, our previous nuclear uh, nuclear deterrence uh, conversation we had uh, on a previous episode that bummed me out for about 24 hours. But I think that's that's something worth worth pointing out. One thing I do want to ask you, Scott, again, Mr. International Law here, you know, this does strike me as the sort of problem in which international agreements, international treaties can be useful, right? I mean, I'm thinking of everything from the, you know, cooperation on the ozone layer, you know, back in the sort of 80s and 90s that effectively solved that problem to the nuclear test ban treaties that, you know, haven't worked perfectly, but like more or less have worked pretty well. I mean, this does strike me as a situation where fundamentally the motives of all the nations are aligned because space is a commons that we want to keep available. And it's pretty verifiable. Like it's very hard to do as we found out. It's in, like, you can't do an anti-satellite test in secret. Like it's pretty obvious what happens. So, you know, am I being too naive to have some optimism for this as the sort of problem that actually international law, international relations has figured out in principle how to negotiate around or has something changed and we shouldn't expect, you know, this tragedy of the commons to become any less tragic anytime soon? You know, it's a good question. Uh, you know, certainly there are regimes one can imagine that seems like they should work because like you said, it's verifiable, it's observable, like, you know, it, you would have naturally built in kind of transparency. Why those haven't emerged, it's a little unclear. Like part of it is because the Outer Space Treaty like anticipated different armaments and space problems, and that was the focus of the existing legal regime, right? It focuses on like weapons launched from and like stationed in space and on the moon, not stuff going into outer space into the void and like targeting objects there. And so that's kind of an oversight. It does seem like something states may want to fill. Question I have is maybe there's just a mutual interest among those states that have space aspirations, which is actually kind of a limited universe. Like there's a lot of countries that have personnel that they want to go into space, but like the number of states that are actually like pursuing a space program that would kind of launch objects in outer space actually like more limited or let alone that have private sector groups that are interested in doing that. Maybe it's that they need a demonstrated capability to do this. And when they have that, they'd be more willing to pull the ladder up behind them, but they didn't want anyone to pull the ladder up before they could climb up it. Now, I don't know what the technological threshold for that is. Like maybe that's a line that's passed a while ago, so that doesn't explain this behavior. Maybe, in fact, actually, no, Russia was saying we've, we, we are only getting this capacity now with enough efficiency that we're confident about it. And so we wanted to test it. And it is true that like, you know, outer space is seeing and going to see a lot of changes how it's used. So maybe states are hesitant to tie them in to a particular generation of technology that does this sort of thing for fear that then the evolution of how space is used will evolve to the point that those weapons aren't as effective anymore. You would have to know a lot more about the technology and where people think it's going, I think, to be able to evaluate that state behavior. But needless to say, like it's actually a small number of states that I think are most directly affected by this, at least in the current ecosystem. Unfortunately, they're just states that have trouble getting past a lot of other issues. But we've seen the Biden administration suggest that they're inclined and are trying to work with China on other arms control issues. So maybe this one enters it in. In some ways, I think you're absolutely right, Alan. Like you can see there being maybe more common interest here to some extent. So maybe it's even a better entry level point. But I don't know. It's a, it's a really good question and something worth looking into. Look, I think we can all agree that we all want to see space safe for Jewish space lasers. 
But can't the Jewish space lasers take out some of the space junk? I mean, maybe that's the solution. Yeah, we, maybe we that's how we're going to solve this. Jewish space lasers just just firing their their lasers at the junk. Pew pew. Absolutely, <laughs> I like it. Ooh. Well, unfortunately, that brings our conversation to an end for this week because we we're running out of time. But of course, it would not be rational security if we did not leave you with object lessons. But before we get to object lessons, I have a public service announcement, um, which is that for anyone out there who listening who may be a law student or may have law students in your lives who think are interested in national security related issues, Lawfare, the publication for which we are all contributors and editors and assorted other roles and in which national security is affiliated, is having a event this Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, that's November 18th, online via Zoom, for any students who are interested in becoming our student contributors. In the past, we've worked with student contributors through certain law school programs. We're trying to kick the door open, have a little more decentralized system to take students from any law schools where they might be interested. And so if you are in that zone or know anyone who is, please go to Lawfare, lawfareblog.com. Look for that post. It should be pinned to the front page and attend that event because it's going to be a great conversation about how great it's worked for and right for Lawfare, particularly for students where I think it's a phenomenal opportunity. And we hope as many people as possible are able to join. And I want to just put in a plug. I was, as luck would have it, Lawfare's first student contributor all the way back a decade ago, which is a terrifying thought. And then I went into the Department of Justice doing national security work. And now I'm a national security law law professor. So it worked out really nicely for me. And it was a really cool experience. So yes, law students, if you're listening, you should come to this and generally reach out, get involved. We're a fun group. You too could host Rational Security 3.0 10 years from now. So get in line, kids. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Um, I will be a head in a jar, still making pew pew noises. Um, not really. I'll be like 40, 44, whatever. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> Quinta, why don't we turn to you for our first actual object lesson? So true to my brand, I'm going to start us off with a bit of a downer, but it's a story that I think is important. New York Magazine ran a big, long story recently about... Felicia Sonmez, who is a Washington Post reporter who is currently suing the Post. The brief version of the story is that Sonmez, uh, shortly after she was hired as a Post reporter a few years ago, spoke out about having been sexually assaulted by uh, another journalist. And essentially, she alleges in this lawsuit was systematically mistreated by Post management because of that They removed her from all stories that involved sexual assault or harassment, uh, which sort of led to her, you know, constantly having to explain why she wasn't able to work on, say, you know, stories involving involving the Kavanaugh nomination, that kind of thing. It's been a the issue has been one that I've been following for a long time. I think it, it obviously gets to some big questions that have been under discussion for a while now about what journalistic objectivity can and should look like. But at the bottom of it all, what the story in New York Magazine really tells, I think, is just about a woman who was open about having experienced sexual violence and who appears to have been, uh, from the reporting and from her allegations, really mistreated by management. Um, So as someone who worked at The Post briefly and is generally a fan of their product. It's really, really disappointing. 
I'm glad that there's now a sort of semi-definitive reported piece out there that talks through the allegations and exactly what's happening at the Post. Um, And I definitely recommend that anyone who's sort of thinking about journalism and what it can and should look like, take a look. Thank you, Quinta. I'm going to take uh, uh, my object lesson in a more festive and dare nowhere I to go but up direction. Yes, um, though an important object lesson from you, Quinta. So uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, so my object lesson is the I don't even know how to describe this. It is a advent calendar of jam from the wonderful Bon Maman Jam Company, which is the producer of my daily driver, Raspberry. Great jam. But they have an advent calendar uh, that is apparently sold out, but maybe they're going to have more in that I have purchased. And I'm already enjoying, even though I am both Jewish and it's not December yet. I'm assuming, I'm assuming it's an annual calendar. There are 365 jars of Do you need someone thing, to explain right? to you how an advent calendar works? <laughs> yeah, no. It's an, I thought like an advent calendar, it's like a thing you do, right? Because there's like a thing called advent in December. I, I'm, really, I'm in it for the jam, everyone. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's like a box of 24 little jams. And you open one each day in December, and they're they're delightful. You know, they they start with with simple jams like strawberry rhubarb, you know, old reliable jams, and you end up with like there's like a peach ginger, a raspberry chamomile, it's all sorts of crazy jams, and it's wonderful, and it's thirty five dollars, and so I think it's a great gift for your loved one or anyone who you know who likes jam. Also, bone my mind if you're looking for a jam spokesperson, I'm here. And by that, Alan, you mean it's a great gift for you. This is a big hint, isn't it? Well, I already have one, so I don't need another one. You could always use more jam. Right. Well, I am installing a new policy of only talking about food or cooking every other object lesson. So I'm going to talk about something different this time, which is the fact that we are living in a golden age of television. If you are a fan of fantasy and or science fiction, which are two very distinct things, but I happen to like both. And I'm particularly excited, well, first off, because one show I've been watching for a long time that I just finally got to catch up on the final or most recent season of uh, this past weekend, The Expanse, uh, is set to come back in a few weeks. If you all listening to this have not watched The Expanse, it is so phenomenal. And this most recent season... For the fifth season of a show where usually I feel like most particularly American TV shows go downhill pretty fast after the first or second season, the fifth season may be the best one. It's phenomenal. Really, really excellent. And it's also that rare television show or series that's or movie for that matter that's just way better than the books. Like the books I read are good. They're entertaining, but they're kind of like pulp action-y, comic book-y sort of thing. The movie or the TV show, excuse me, has like really, really great pacing, character development. They have like, in this season, they spend like basically a whole episode or two's worth of just one woman trapped in a space station, hitting things with like ways to communicate with the outside world. That's fascinating and super high drama. And it's such like a wonderfully like small, pared down, perfectly executed part of the story, which otherwise has like things blowing up all over the universe. It's great. Uh, So highly, highly recommend that. And then the second piece of news I got just the other week, which is that one of my other all-time favorite book series, uh, I mean, the science fiction genre, Hyperion, 
which is the name of the first book in a in a series of four books called the Hyperion Cantos. It's written in the late eighties and early nineties, early mid nineties, is actually evidently being optioned, although for like the third or fourth time, because it's been happening off and on for like a decade, to be having a movie made of it by in a project headed by Bradley Cooper of all people, who's evidently oh. also a very big fan of the book. And I think other people have been attached to this project at various times. Oh. Like at one point it was on TV show, then it was gonna be a movie. I think actually Brad Pitt was involved like 10 years ago. But it sounds like Bradley Cooper is making this his thing because he's starting a production company and this is his first big property he's like investing in. I am terrified of this because mm-hmm. I think this might be a case where it's a book that's really, really hard to make into a good movie or a TV show and yep. it's going to take away from the book. And the book is, the series is phenomenal and something that I have uh, a great affection for. It's one of those few books you read and you have a sense of loss when you finish it. But We'll see what comes out of it, but keep an eye out for that. And if you haven't yet, dig into the Hyperion Cantos on book or audio tape. It is phenomenal. Hey, Scott, speaking of books that are really, really hard to turn into quality TV, I'm afraid to watch, but you may have done this already. The Apple TV or Apple TV Plus, whatever they call it, the visualization of the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov. Have you jumped into that yet? I have been saving that precisely because I have had a lot of work lately, but I'm I'm a little nervous about it too. Although I will admit I have not actually like I think I read uh the foundation when I was a teenager, early teenager, and I have not dug into the whole series, so I don't have quite the frame of reference. So that may help me in this, but we'll see. Alan, you were watching this though, right? I am watching Foundation. And uh, my feelings about it are complicated. <laughs> um I will say it is a visually stunning series it does kind of okay with the themes of the book though it's a little more actiony than i would like though a straight translation of the books into a tv show would be the most boring thing of all time one thing that i will say that i have been pleasantly surprised about is that the the stuff it's added to the universe is actually the best part of it. Oh. So in the books, you don't learn a lot about the um, actual galactic empire that is in the process of falling apart. You learn way, way more about it in the TV show. And that to me is by far the most interesting part of the show. They're clearly putting a ton of money into this. And I think they've committed for a long time. Um, and so I am pretty optimistic that especially after this first season, which I think has to be a little more predictable, they're going to get a little more philosophical, a little more Asimovian. Nice. Um, so I, I say stick stick with it. You know, your viewing will be much enhanced if you think of it as a loose adaptation inspiration of the books rather than attempt at a faithful dramatization. As long as they don't do to it what the filmmakers did to iRobot, which was a travesty. No, they, they do not do that. Okay. All right. Well, David, why don't you wind us out with our uh, final object lesson? Yeah, this is an interesting set of object lessons, isn't it? I mean, we, we've hit food, we've hit entertainment, we've hit tragedy. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it to a, a different place. I'm going to take it to a podcast. It is a podcast called Chatter, which is, you could say, the baby brother of rational security because it is in the lawfare family. It is a new weekly podcast hosted by Shane Harris, which Rational Security listeners uh, will have distant memories of, recently rekindled by his appearance here with you all, uh, and co-hosted by me. And what we're doing with this is we're having long-form conversations at what we'll call the creative edges of national security. So trying to talk to people who have some angle on national security, intelligence, defense, foreign affairs, 
from Hollywood or history or or science or spy fiction, just to really stretch and, and see where we can get some interesting conversations going one-on-one for anywhere from an hour to three or four hours, wherever the spirit takes us. So far, we've had episodes with Joe Weisberg, the creator of the Americans TV hit, and Adam Kinzinger, who happened to go to the same high school as I did in Illinois, and we build from there. And the special treat for Rational Security listeners is a sneak preview, which is the episode that will drop tomorrow, Thursday, the 18th of November, will feature the former number two in the intelligence community, Sue Gordon, who is most famous because of her interactions with and around Donald Trump during that administration and the fact that she was supposed to be acting director of national intelligence when Dan Coats was let go, but the president decided that the nation would be better served by people like John Ratcliffe and Rick Grinnell. But Sue has a much more interesting history than what was done to her by Trump. And we discuss a whole lot of her formative experiences, her leadership lessons, and her three-time captaincy of the Duke basketball team. So listen for that on Thursday morning, as well as episodes of Chatter every week thereafter. And Rational Security listeners will see an episode of Chatter in their feed later this week. So keep an eye out for that. But there's no need to wait. Just go over and sign up for Chatter today. Well, with that note, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where you'll also find liner notes for this episode and links to the articles and object lessons we discussed. You can also purchase Rational Security swag at lawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits, including a committed ad-free feed for this very podcast. Please do follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And wherever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review or hit that share button and pass it along to your loved ones. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. And our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, we are edited by the wonderful Jen Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Ben Allen, and our special guest, David Priest, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. 